This is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 20th, 2021. As so often in this show, we're going to cast our minds backwards, back into history, American history. 73 years ago in 1948, in August 1948, what was America like? Uh, we're talking to an author who's written a book about the America of, 18, uh, of 1948. And I'm going to quote a little bit from the book before I introduce him. Um, uh, in terms of the 1948 dollar, the price of everything seemed impossibly cheap. Uh, gallon of gas was 26 cents. I won't tell you how much that a gallon of gas now is in California. A loaf of bread cost 14 cents. Uh, for 60 cents, you could see John Wayne in, in, in Red River. And a new, and I'm quoting the author, newfangled 10-inch uh, black and white TV was a $400 luxury. And yet Bobby Kennedy went to Harvard, uh, who he graduated in, in 1948 for $550. You, $550, you couldn't even buy a meal at Harvard these days. Um, America was, quote unquote, a colorblind constitution and the rule of law was supposed to guarantee every individual the equal right to live, speak, worship, work, vote and travel freely. But of course, that wasn't true. Uh, women, homosexuals, Latinos, Jews and American Indians still had a steep uphill legal road. Um, the land of the free was more like an extension of the feudal Mississippi Delta. America then as now was dominated by, I think, the issue of race and of racism and of this uh, endless uh, conflict between whites and blacks. Uh, in, in 1948, the lynchings in the South had declined, but... Um, Things were still pretty nasty in 1946, for example, about 60 miles east of Atlanta. Two young married couples from the town of Monroe were tied up and shot to death in broad daylight by 18 white men armed with pistols, rifles and shotguns. And in spite of the outrage, um, these people were never prosecuted. Meanwhile, the the fields um, of America in 1948 look very much like the fields of America in 1880. Uh, I'm quoting my author, the brown fields on both sides of two-lane Highway 61 were scattered to the horizons with ragged little columns of men, women, and children in overalls, printed cotton dresses, and wide straw hats, sharecroppers, all of them were black, some were in their 70s, some as young as five. Um, if there hadn't been telephone wires strung along the highway and Pepsi-Cola signs nailed to the fronts of the few quote-unquote colored cafes and general stores they passed, it could have been 1880. Uh, it is chilling, um, and I'm quoting here from uh, uh, my guest today on the show, Bill Steigerwald, a very distinguished uh, Pittsburgh-based uh, journalist and author. Um, he has a book, 30 Days a Black Man, which is about uh, the journey of both a black and a white man in the South of 1948. Enough of me. Bill, 
Um, let me introduce you. Um, Bill Steigerwald, uh, the author of 30 Days of Black Man. Uh, Bill, this America of 1848, uh, you're an experienced journalist. How shocked were you when you were writing this book? I, uh, when I read the details of what daily life was like for the uh, one of the 10 million American blacks living in, in the Jim Crow South in 1948, I was shocked uh, by the uh, pettiness of it, the nastiness of it. It was both oppressive in a political and legal and civil rights sense, but it was also humiliating. Um, blacks, whether they were whether they were sharecroppers or, or college professors, were subjected to the same kind of uh, rules and, and, and humiliations that, that uh, just, you know, never let them forget that they were second-class citizens. Bill, you're not the first or the last uh, Pittsburgh-based journalist to be shocked by this situation. The book is based on uh, a very distinguished, perhaps the most famous Pittsburgh journalist of all, Ray Spriggle, who um, became, quote-unquote, a black man for 30 days, 30 days a black man. And Ray Spriggle, a very well-known, uh, even at that point, illustrious journalist, um, dressed himself up, I guess, as a black man to imagine what it was like to, to be undercover in the land of Jim Crow. Tell me about this Jim uh, Spriggle. He was quite a remarkable fellow, wasn't he? Uh, Ray Spriggle had won, the, had won a Pulitzer in 1938 for, for going down south and digging up the paperwork that proved, proved that uh, Judge Hugo Black, who had just been nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court uh, by uh, FDR uh, was a was a lifetime member of the KKK, and that was a huge story, and it was the biggest news story of the year in 1937. And he won the Pulitzer in 1938. And actually, I got that backwards. Whatever, he won the Pulitzer in 38. And um, Spriggle was a was a, an iconic Pittsburgh character. He had been working as a journalist for uh, since 1910 or 1912. He was a master of going undercover. He, he uh, during World War II, he pretended to be a, a, a butcher, and uh, he went up and down the, the through the hills of Western Pennsylvania, uh, buying meat on the black market, and and then he wrote a big series in the paper, front page series. That was, uh, and he spent more time in a in mental hospitals, those state those horrible state mental hospitals of the day. Than, uh, than was probably healthy for him as a, as a patient, as a guard, and as an observer three different times over his career. And he was yeah, a tough great guy, writer. wasn't he? I, I was amused with your anecdote about um, his association with a fellow called Jaime Martin from Pittsburgh, and a, um, I guess a mob leader of some sort <laughs> who, who, who he was well acquainted with. He certainly knew his way around the world, this... Uh, uh, this uh, uh, Ray Spriggle uh, uh, and um, uh, and a very brave man, a man of great appetites and, and energy, uh, but he couldn't have done it alone. He couldn't have become a black man just on his own. And of course, what he needed was uh, a black man equal to him. And he found one in John Wesley 
Dobbs, who became his kind of co-conspirator in imagining what it was like to be a black man in the Jim Crow South. Tell me about John Wesley Dobbs, who in many ways is an even more remarkable character than than Ray Spriggle. Yes, Dobbs was uh, a superstar, uh, a black man who had uh, been born, uh, his mother had been a slave. And um, his grandparents, one of his grandparents was a white slaveholder. Dobbs in, in the 1930s and 40s and through the 50s was a prominent political and social leader in Atlanta who fought constantly for his race. He was known as a race man. Those, these were the guys who, who he devoted his whole life to trying to improve the social and political lives of blacks. He was successful in dealing with the white mayor and the white power structure in Atlanta and he would trade. He he figured out a way to trade votes uh, for streetlights in his neighborhood, or, or for a park in his neighborhood. And he was a great orator. He had met FDR twice. He had appeared on CBS radio, uh, a show reading stuff. He he had memorized hundreds of poems. He knew great. Uh, he had the what was it? The three Bs books. The the three books. Uh, Ballots and bucks, I think, were his three. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, he was a remarkable character. And what amazed me reading the book was he he grew up with Martin Luther King Jr., which is uh, certainly a, a, a remark. I mean, it, it, if it was just that, his would be a remarkable story. But he was part oh, yeah. of this sort of new black aristocracy or certainly black middle class in Atlanta, wasn't he? Yes, and it was a very small layer of, of the South's black uh, population were middle class or lower middle class. And uh, these were the professionals, the doctors, the dentists, the teachers, the uh, merchants, I guess. And Dobbs, oh, his, he had, Dobbs had six girls. Everyone went to Spelman, which is considered the Vassar, uh, the black Vassar. Everyone was a, was a superstar like him. Uh, in, in, they graduated first or second in their class. One went on to become a major opera star in, in Europe. Um, they, the, the girls, each one, he, he molded their lives. He, he must have been a very domineering father because he took yeah. care of everything. He made sure they could drive at age 16, that they could play the piano. And they were all very successful. And Every one of those girls graduated from Spelman, which which in any yeah. family having six college grads in 19. Yeah, I mean, he was a remarkable man and a, a remarkable uh, American. And, and, and between him and and and, um, and Ray Spriggle, they cooked up this idea of, of Spriggle going with, uh, w- with Dobbs and, and imagining what it was like to be black. Now, what one author called the American dilemma, the Negro, the, and I'm quoting the title of the book from the, the Swedish um, sociologist Gunnar Myrdal, an American dilemma, the Negro problem and modern democracy written by Myrdal. You, you talk about this book at the beginning. Uh, what was, um, Bill, the American dilemma in 1947, 1948, the American dilemma that um, that uh, uh, Ray Spriggle and, and, and John Wesley Dobbs were investigating? 
it, uh, Miradol, who came and studied the, the American Negro for several years in the South and with researchers and everything, he came from uh, Sweden. Um, he thought that the, the American dilemma was the Negro problem. And he said until America um, started to treat blacks as they should have been treated by, as any citizen should have been, uh, America was going to be in big trouble. And um, that dilemma would only be solved, Myrdal thought, when the white North found out the horrible, awful details of what life was really like in the Jim Crow South for 10 million of their fellow citizens. And amazingly, I guess, or interestingly, Spriggle did exactly, Spriggle never read Myrdal's book, according to his daughter, and I talked to her for a long time, but Spriggle basically did what Myrdal said needed to be done. And that was by going into the Jim Crow South for, for 30 days, coming back and writing a a 21-part syndicated uh, series that shocked the white north, Spriggle uh, woke up the country to the to the gory details. Blacks knew all about it. Black newspapers reported. Well, of on course it. they did. I mean, on it everything. was uh, hard. It was it was impossible for any black to forget it. Certainly, if you lived in the South or even if you lived in the North. You mentioned Jim Crow laws. Not everyone would be familiar with this term. What did it mean, Bill? Well, they were state and local laws that uh, weren't necessarily uniform everywhere. And, and some, some towns, blacks had to get on the front of the bus and get off at the rear. And, and other towns, it was the reverse. But in general, they were uh, local ordinances that dictated where, when, and how blacks could interact, if at all, with whites in public spaces. So most buildings had two elevators, one for whites and one for blacks. If you went to court, there was a white Bible to swear on and there was a black Bible to swear on. Uh, blacks and whites could not play baseball together in, in these towns. Um, they couldn't play tennis together. Oh, tennis was ridiculous. Nobody could ever do that. Um, and, and, and that's not even talking about separate schools, separate but very unequal schools that blacks were subjected to. Uh, and public transportation, uh, sitting in the back of the bus or, or, or the back of the trolley, all of that was just there every single day. If you came to an intersection and there was a white car and a black car, the white car always had the right of way, things like that. And it, it really was insufferable. And Spriggle... Well, I think it's, I, I'm not sure I would uh, use that word, uh, Bill. I mean, it's worse than insufferable. It was a it was a deep crime against humanity, wasn't it? I mean, in, in yes. some ways, equal to some of the worst crimes in history. They may not have um, eliminated Black America, but uh, it was a, 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 a it was a it it wasn't that different from a slave based hierarchical system, was it? No, it, it, and it was, you know, blacks were free. They weren't slaves, but, but the uh, conditions of their workplaces and their, and their employment and their place in the societies, small towns and large, where it was very, very second, if not third or fourth class. And they were never allowed to forget it. Um, to put it mildly. So let's go back to the, the Spriggle story. The... Um... The, court, uh, the cover of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, when um, it 
came out with his first report. The, the headline was, I was a Negro in the South for 30 days by Bill Sprigger. What was, what was it like for him? Did he really experience what it was like? Or did he just travel around with uh, Dobbs in his car and meet a lot of relatively friendly African-Americans who treated him like an insider? Well, Spriggle had the idea that the only way he was going to find out what the Jim Crow South was like if he, is, was if he went there. He tried to dye his skin with, with chemicals and some uh, mahogany bark and all kinds of crazy things. Couldn't do it. When he approached the NAACP and Walter White, who was its dynamic head, he, told, he said what he wanted to do. They loved the idea. They told him, just get a really, really heavy tan and... and We'll find you a guide and no one's ever uh, anybody who says he's a black man in the South is believed. No one's going to say, no, you're not. So that's what Spriggle did. He went down to Florida for three weeks, burned his skin brown as he could, met John Wesley Dobbs at the train station in Washington, uh, D.C., rode with Dobbs down to Atlanta and then spent 30 days. And as Spriggle says, he met everybody from sharecroppers to, um, I don't know, the professors at, at the colleges and Martin Luther King Jr. probably, and is certainly Martin Luther what King. What was the most, in, in your mind, to Spriggle, who was a, a very experienced newspaper guy, lived in London during the war, done all sorts of very daring things. What was the most shocking thing to him that he experienced? What amazed him most? He, by the time he was done living like a black man for 30 days, he, he, he traveled and slept in black homes and ate in the back of restaurants and did all that stuff. He said he was ashamed to be an American and he, and he was not very fond of the white race either. What I think one of the things that really, really, really ticked him off and really sort of put him over the edge was the honor rolls that these small towns would have for the World War II servicemen who had died in, in, in battle. And these, these cities, these towns, would have two honor rolls, one for whites and one for blacks. And they were often relegated to, the black honor roll was often relegated to the black neighborhood. So when Spriggle saw this, it really annoyed, I mean, it enraged him because he thought, you know, these are black Americans who gave their lives to defend this country. And the country treats them like crap still. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, last week we had Jay Chester Johnson on who, who wrote about the uh, terrible uh, race massacre in 1919 in Arkansas, his new book, Damaged Heritage, uh, which came out of uh, African-American soldiers coming back from World War One. I. I assume a similar thing happened after World War Two. The injustice of this is just so self-evident and appalling. Yes, and... And as the uh, and several World War II veterans, black veterans, were uh, beaten up uh, uh, by, you know, because they were wearing their uniform or because they tried to vote. One was killed because he did vote. They came the next day or two, dragged him out of his house and shot him in his front porch. So uh, the the sum of all the uh, the details of of what life was like, whether it was schooling or voting rights or. Or, or jobs, it, it's just sort of overwhelmingly <laughs> depressing to think that this existed, and this was 1948, and uh, it's Which still- In historical terms, it's, it's not that long ago. Um, you you no. quote um, the big hit, the big best-selling book of the time in 1947 was John Gunther, a very 
distinguished American journalist. He's inside the USA. How much did Gunther, I mean, he didn't live like a black man, but uh, how much did he expose about this great crime? I think Gunther was one of those people that I discovered who shocked me with how great a journalist he was. His Inside USA was not just a, a ridiculously thorough look at the um, United States. He went to every state capital and interviewed the political and, and corporate bosses. Uh, and But he also, when he went into the South, his his feeling, uh, his sympathy and his, his repertorial skills took him into sharecroppers' homes. And he describes and rails against the conditions there uh, to a fairly well. And, and very, he, uh, there's nothing he said in his book that I read. I didn't read all of it. I read, you know, the chunks that I needed to read. That was it was so good and well worth uh, well worth revisiting. Might be worth a book in itself on that. I know there's there's a lot of thought uh, talk, um, Bill, about turning your book into a television series. It's not all black and white. Your narrative. There's a guy kind of in the middle of it all who is also an interesting figure in the narrative. Hodding Carter. Yeah. Uh, 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 and I'm quoting from his Wikipedia page, a Southern progressive journalist and author who also became uh, not the debating partner, but the debating opponent of Spriggle. Why is Carter an interesting figure in the narrative? Carter was a, a, a tremendous journalist in every way. He knew how to write. He could write novels. He did. He ran a newspaper in um in Greenville, Mississippi, in the heart of the Delta. He was a good guy in every way. He treated blacks well. He, he respected them, even in his newspaper. He, well, he why shouldn't talking. he? I mean, that's not exactly something to compliment someone on, right? No, but this was very rare in the South. Uh, for instance, he would call uh, black men Mr., and that was like unheard of and, and things like that. But he, um, he was considered a liberal by the North, because he was he was progressive in his in the way he treated blacks. And his but son he, actually turned out to, uh, to to work for Jimmy Carter, didn't he? So yes, he did. The name is familiar. So go on. Sorry. But, uh, but Carter, um, what was I going to say? He, uh, he, I've lost my track. He was he, a great he defended journalist. The way, I, would it be fair to say that he defended? the way of life of the South. He was still a romantic when it came to the culture of the South. Yes, I'm sorry. And that's what I was trying to say. He was also a segregationist, a diehard segregationist. So in 1948, as nice as he was, as, as progressive as he was, as... How can you be a progressive and a segregationist? I don't see how that's possible. Yeah, well, that, that was his... He was torn. He was... He stuck up for the South's mores and culture... And he, but and he was, he didn't want blacks to be harmed in any way legally. He wanted them to get get their full civil rights, but he didn't want it to happen tomorrow, and he didn't want it want it to happen at the end of federal bayonets that would come down and force. And he was very, very smart, very sophisticated, and he saw the future. He knew that segregate or integration was going to be a major, major. Uh, yeah. And one of the interesting things in your book is that after the book came out and caused a bit of a stir, uh, him and uh, Spriggle were on uh, were on a, a, a national debate. 
couple of other things I've struck with in the book. How well Spriggle and, 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 and Dobbs got on and how similar they were, uh, you write, despite their obvious differences, the two senior citizens were getting along famously. Was there anything concretely beneficial that came out of the this this personal arrangement between Spriggle and Dobbs? Or, or was it just one of those things and both men who were very busy moved on later in their lives to other stuff? I think the latter is 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 correct, Andrew. They didn't know each other, obviously. Uh, Walter White of the NAACP set them up. He's the one who, you know, Spriggle went to the NAACP and said he wanted to do this. They said, you're going to need a guide. They found him, John Wesley Dobbs. Dobbs yeah. was an erudite, Shakespeare quoting, great orator, uh, a leader of, of his who's gonna play, Who's going to play him in the movie, Bill? Um, I always thought that um, uh, uh, Sam, Samuel Jackson would play him. Yeah. Um, who's the right age. Uh, remember, Spriggle was 61. And, and who's going to play 66. Spriggle? You could play Spriggle, couldn't you? <laughs> I guess I could if I could act. I've been trying to get Michael Keaton to play him for years. Now Michael Keaton's getting too old. I always thought that uh, Jeff Bridges, if he gained 200 pounds, you have a picture of Spriggle there. If he yeah. shaved his head, got a tan, and uh, gained 200 pounds. I certainly liked his fried chicken, didn't he, Spriggle? <laughs> yes, he did. But by the time he came back, he, was, he, was, he had lost about 30 pounds. Um, Why? Because he wasn't eating? Well, he didn't eat as lustily as he was yeah, He didn't to. like the southern fried chicken, did he? That was kind <laughs> of interesting. He uh, preferred the, the, the northern fried chicken. More yeah. seriously, um, the, grill, the real question in terms of your book is, has anything really changed? I was struck with one anecdote from the book in a small town called Americus, and I'm quoting you here, Spriggle heard about the latest local effort of the white man to roll back the rising tide of franchise that is sweeping Georgia. The courthouse mm -hmm. gang has purged the registration lists of 800 names of Negro voters, a bare 80 are left. It kind of reminded me now of what's happening uh, in the South when it comes to the rights of African-Americans to vote. Has much changed since 1840, uh, not 18, 1948, Bill? Um, I personally have, have tried to make the statement, and I've written a couple articles about it, that the claims that today's uh, voting rights laws and and schools and everything else are a throwback to Jim Crow or some kind of echo, if not, uh, you know, Jim Crow 2.0. I think uh, I don't I, I don't buy it. I'm sorry. 1948 was absolutely horrible in every way. I mean, they just didn't make it hard for, for blacks to vote. If you voted, you were likely to have you have your house firebombed the next day or, or worse uh, to happen to you. It was and, and the the governmental apparatus was designed to to keep the black vote basically as low and as and as worthless as possible. Uh, today, you know, obviously blacks vote. They black they they've been voting at high rates of uh, participation. Um, blacks have enormous power politically. They've elected presidents of the United States. I mean, you know, it's it's a far different today from what it was in 1948. It doesn't mean there aren't problems today, but I think that a book like mine demonstrates in about 50 pages how much different and how much, uh, how oppressive, humiliating, discriminatory 
uh, it was for blacks in the Jim Crow South and in the North too. It was by law in the South, but in the North, they had sundown towns, thousands of them apparently. You know, If you were black or Asian and you were in a small town in uh, Idaho somewhere, you had to leave the town limits um, by, by sundown. And, and there were many, many uh, discriminations in the North that were, you know, they say they're subtle, but they weren't really that subtle if you were a black person. Um, and where you could live and, and who, you know, 1948, I think uh, the, the uh, Brotherhood of Electrical Workers in Pittsburgh had 1,500 uh, members, one black man. And there were no blacks in. And that's Pittsburgh, which was uh, Truman called the arsenal of American democracy. So God knows what it was like in the rest of the country. One complimentary text to yours might be I, I interviewed her a few months ago, an African writer, Angela Nyabola, who's written a book called Traveling Wild Black. Yes. There's also an interesting, I, I don't know if you're familiar, um, there's an interesting Oculus Rift, a 3D virtual reality game. Tra it's not really a game, and it's experienced traveling while black. Um, for young people in particular, young whites, do these kind of experiences, can we imagine what it was like uh, for black people in the America of, of 1948? What, what advice would you give a a white person, particularly a white person who's watching this, to imagine what it was like to be a black man. Uh, you know, the 30 day, you, you, you've written a book, 30 Days a Black Man, which uh, uh, Ray Spriggle imagined what it was like to be black. What advice would you give people to experience, to empathize with the experience of black Americans historically? <laughs> I, 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 you need a time machine, Andrew. It, there's... How, well, how you provided uh, that's what books are, aren't they? <laughs> Time machines, in a way. Yes, thank you. Uh, good one. The um, you know when when Spriggle and Dobbs, two sophisticated black guys in a nice car, travel traveled three thousand miles across the South from from Savannah to the Delta and back to Atlanta a couple times. Um, they they could not. They, they had to pee in the bushes. They had to uh, eat. Uh, they had to find restaurants where they could eat. And in many cases, in the small towns and back roads, there were none. So they, they or they were, if they were lucky, they ate at the back door of a restaurant, standing up, ordering food, eating it and leaving. Um, they, if they, if they drove too fast, if they, if they looked too suspicious, white sheriffs would stop them, especially because they had a good car. So the nicer car you had, the, the car was an enormous um, vehicle of freedom for black people in the South. And anyone who could get one got one because when you're traveling at 60 miles an hour, Jim Crow's laws and regulations can't get you. Uh, it's when you stop and you want to eat or go to the bathroom. Dobbs nearly sleep. killed himself in his fancy car, didn't he? Yeah, he loved cars. He was a he was a crazy man. He had two of them, which was rare for anybody in America in 1948 or 1950. We, uh, an old friend of mine, Carol Anderson, another Atlanta-based uh, writer, very distinguished scholar and polemicist on the experience of black America. She argues, she's done this, she said this, suggested to me in, in, in a series of interviews that whilst America, American history perhaps is not as, 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 as black, as, as dark as the Nazi period in German history, 
Americans have to face their past in the way in which uh, the, the post-Nazi German uh, Germans have done so. Do you agree? Do you think there is still a need for America to actually acknowledge these deep crimes against black people, which you write about in your book? Yes. And I'm a longtime libertarian, so I'm not a I'm not a liberal do-gooder, Democrat, you know, race crusader of any kind. Uh, by the I I truly believe that today's Americans, black and white, old and young, need history as you know, as you know, as I know, uh, it's it's the it's the uh, key to understanding a lot of what's going on today. You get you have to go back and see what what was what was and what is now and compare and do all that good stuff. The, to, the Today's blacks and whites, I've been an Uber driver for five, for the last five years. Uh, this is- the, Oh, you have? I hope they're paying <laughs> you properly, Bill. <laughs> they were. Uh, and I've, I picked up literally hundreds of young black men and girls and boys, men and women, and others black, other blacks in Pittsburgh. And I, I, I always talk to my riders. I always talk to them. If they're black, inevitably, I get around to asking them questions about their lives and things. I'm a journalist, right? I can't help myself. And it came, I came to realize that today's education system is so horrible that black kids can go through high school. White kids can go through the best high schools, and they know nothing by the time they get out. They're lucky to know who have heard of Thurgood Marshall or Martin Luther King's uh, speech from the, you know, from the or whatever, Birmingham jail. They know nothing. And it's, it's a shame because there's so much to learn. And, you know, I, I was a history major at Villanova in Philadelphia about a million years ago. And I guess I finally applied my, uh, my degree to, uh, to, you know, well, by writing this book. But when, when you, um, what this book taught me was that there's nothing new, that everything was worse going back in history. And that everything, that nothing is as black and white or as simple as, as we think it was. And, and there's just so, take, take the voting rights legislation that's going on now. Without knowing what it was and how, how ridiculously horrible it was and impossible for blacks to vote at the, you know, at the risk of their lives. And some did lose their lives because they voted. And comparing that to what's going on now, you have to know both both places to understand. Okay, it may not still be perfect, and there are issues and there are problems. And states, some states are good and bad. Yada yada. yada. But go back to 1948. Well, we do need to go back to 1948, and and you've allowed us to do it, Bill, with uh, your wonderful book, Thirty Days of Black Man. Uh, it's a must read, I think, uh, as you say, particularly uh, for American young people who don't know their history. It's a real wake up call. It's a shocking story, but also a very reassuring and a warming story of, 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 of remarkable, two remarkable men and, uh, and, uh, and their friendship and association. Congratulations on the book, Bill. Um, you. You're in Pittsburgh at the moment, the arsenal of American democracy, I understand, according to Harry Truman anyway. Um, what else should people be reading in these strange times where we're not still quite sure whether we should be going out? Well, <laughs> what I've been reading is, uh, the, you know, this guy, William Shower, 
who mm. as a journalist, I, I can understand him and, and appreciate what he did and how he did it and what he found, what world he found himself in, in 1930s Nazi Germany, having beers with members of Hitler's inner circle. What's and, the book, Bill? Uh, you might read the title, William oh, Shearer. The Nightmare Years, 1930 to 1940. Yeah, by one William of the great Nussbaum. American journalists like... Uh, uh, like Ray Spriggle, who, who lived in Nazi Germany and reported back, history and journalism, essential chemistry for truth. Bill Steigerwald, um, the uh, very good journalist and historian, 30 Days of Black Man, a, a, a wonderful book. Bill, congratulations on the book. Keep Thank well, you. and we're going to look forward to the TV series, and I'm expecting a, another book on 1948. Uh, or another period in American history for you. You're a very, very important journalist and writer bringing wisdom to a country which hasn't acknowledged its past. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Andrew.